0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We'll be considering the whole this whole chapter this morning. As we'll soon see, this chapter is is tied together. Jesus is giving us three different parables, but they all have a common theme, common structure, and really a common point. So Luke chapter 15. Please pay careful attention, for this is the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me! for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came and entreated him. And he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, I was at first exposed Test, okay. Well, I was first exposed to uh, reform theology by a professor I had in college. And this professor introduced one class with this question. He said, if a group of Christians decide to gather together at a local coffee shop or even at someone's home to enjoy Christian fellowship, to read the word of God, does that constitute church? Meaning, does that fill the gap of going and belonging to a local church. Well, that was quite the conundrum for a class full of evangelicals. And this professor went on to teach us what our own Belgic Confession, which is our statement of faith here as a, a, a URC church, what our own Belgic Confession teaches us in Article 29. The three marks of a true church, the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, and church or ecclesiastical discipline. Now, the first two of those marks might seem somewhat self-explanatory. Of course, a church needs to engage in the pure preaching of the gospel. Of course, they need to deliver and administrate the two sacraments according to Christ's directive. But What about this third mark, church discipline? In many ways, this is the lost mark of the contemporary church. In fact, what comes to mind when you think of the word discipline or or even more specifically, church discipline. I would imagine many, many people have negative connotations that come to mind. Punitive action, being punished for one's faults or transgressions. You might think of an extreme puritanical practice that definitely doesn't fit the contemporary church. You might even have past experiences in which Church discipline has been abused or mispracticed. In fact, I remember talking to my dad a a while ago and he was telling me a story about when he was growing up in a farming community in the rural Midwest. And he said that in their local parish, he grew up as a Catholic, and in their local parish, farmers needed to have a special dispensation from the priest if they wanted to do any additional work on Sundays beyond morning and evening milkings. And he said that one neighbor decided to do some extra farm work, some field work on Sunday afternoon without this dispensation and the priest got wind of it and he drove over to this neighbor's house and told this farmer that he was going to hell and his barns were going to burn for profaning the Sabbath day. So discipline, church discipline. What should we think about this? Is this indeed one of the marks Of a true and faithful and biblical church? Or is this something that we need to move on from? An area where we need to continue to reform out of? Well, I'd like to consider this topic in light of what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 15. And I believe that Jesus gives us some very helpful direction and wisdom on this very important issue. So, first, I want us to consider how Jesus. Instructs us that church discipline requires under shepherds who imitate the chief shepherd. So church discipline requires under shepherds who imitate the chief shepherd. Now, if you look in your Bibles in verses one and two, we read that the the Pharisees and the scribes, they were grumbling to themselves. Why? because Jesus is associating with sinners, with tax collectors, these individuals who had a notorious reputation in Jesus's day. And a religious leader did not associate with the likes of these. Now we've already witnessed Jesus associating with with this crowd in, in Luke's gospel many times. But notice Jesus's response. His response is to offer a number of parables. As I've already mentioned, these parables are united by a common theme as well as a common structure. In fact, there's so much unity to these parables that Luke just describes them as a singular parable in verse 2. These parables teach us a number of things. On the one hand, these parables are an indictment against the shepherding ministry of the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were neglectful, abusive of the people of God. In fact, they failed to even reach out to those on the fringe of the community, sinners and tax collectors, those who were primed for the gospel. These parables also give us a glimpse into into the heart of Christ for his people, especially the heart of Christ for his straying but yet repentant people. We especially see the heart of Christ exemplified in the shepherd the woman, the father, in these three parables. And we see his straying people exemplified in the lost sheep, the lost coin, and this prodigal rebellious son. As I put it more pointedly, we see Christ's pursuing and restorative heart. We see Christ exemplified in two ways. He pursues and he restores. He pursues and he restores. And so where do we see this pursuing heart of Christ? Well, this first parable, of course, is a parable about a shepherd and his flock, a shepherd and his sheep. And this shepherd has a hundred sheep in his fold. And he notices that one sheep has left the fold. He's that perceptive. He knows his sheep that well that he notices when one is gone. In response, he leaves the 99 and he goes after this one sheep. Now, the word pastor or pastoral literally refers to a shepherd, a herdsman. Is that agrarian, is agrarian word? And As I uh, mentioned before, I grew up on a, a small dairy farm in the Midwest, and one thing I was amazed at as a kid growing up on a farm is how well my dad knew his, his herd. He named every cow, he you pointed to the cow, he could tell you its medical history, its milk production history, he knew his herd well. I believe one of the reasons why Jesus employs the metaphor and imagery of a shepherd to describe his caring ministry for his people is because one thing that's true of all herdsmen is that they care for and know their cattle or their herd well. And such is the case with this shepherd in this parable. And Ezekiel 34, which in some sense is standing in the, in the background of this parable. Ezekiel 34 is a passage where God is indicting the spiritual shepherds of Israel for their failure to shepherd the people of God and their abuse towards the people of God. The people of God are like a sheep without a shepherd. And in response, God promises that he will send forth some sometime in the future, the good and true and faithful shepherd, a shepherd who will also be the son of David. Now, of course, who is that shepherd? Our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is on the scene. And so he he definitely sees himself as the good shepherd, the shepherd that leaves the 99 to pursue that one straying and rebellious sheep. Well, the second parable, we also see this idea of pursuit. Uh, This woman in this parable likely is a peasant woman we see that as she's searching for this lost coin, she has to light a lamp. This may indicate that this this woman didn't have any windows in her home. And we are told that this woman only had 10 silver coins. And commentators note that a coin was approximately the equivalent of a day's day's work. And she lost one of her 10 coins, which 10% of her wealth, 10% of her savings. We see things ratcheting up. In the first parable, the shepherd loses 1% of his wealth. Now it's 10%. This is a big deal for this peasant woman. Consequently, when she recognizes one of her coins is not in her purse, she scours her house. She looks everywhere. We're meant to see the effort that this woman puts forth to finding this, this lost coin. Well, we know that Christ's pursuit of his people, Christ's pursuit of his flock, his coins, as it were, involved him coming to this earth, taking upon himself a true human nature, being born in the likeness of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. After that death, we know that he rose again from the dead, proving to everyone that he did and he was who he said he was. And as he ascended into heaven, what what came down? The Spirit. The Spirit is the one who came down to deliver to us this gift of salvation which Christ has won for us. Remember one pastor explaining this point using uh, the imagery of a a fishing hook. So so Christ, he ascended into the new creation, right hand of the Father. He ascended, to use another biblical metaphor, the mountain of the Lord, And as he ascends this mountain of the Lord, he casts the hook of the Spirit, as it were, into the mouths and hearts of his people. And thus this age is an age in which Christ is slowly reeling us to himself, conforming us more and more into his image and likeness. But we know that there are times, because we still have a sinful nature, we still sin. We're sinners and saints. At times we are still hardened by sin and its deceit. There are times where we sort of want to spit out that hook of the spirit. But the good news is that the hook of the spirit is implanted so deep into our hearts and lives that it's impossible for us to do so. And thus Christ pursued us. He pursued us while we were yet enemies, but even now as we've been adopted in the family of God, he has us so much so that we can't leave the fold. Think about what uh, Jesus says in John 10, when he says, when he says that he is, uh, He's the good shepherd. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I am the one who gives them eternal life. They will never perish. No one shall snatch me out of my hand. Well, where do we see the restorative heart of Christ? So Christ pursues his people. He keeps his people. Where do we see the restorative heart of Christ? Well, notice how in that first parable Jesus says that this this shepherd doesn't just pursue the sheep, but he restores the sheep back into the fold by picking up that sheep, putting it on his back and carrying it to the rest of the sheep. This is something that this passage's parallel text in Matthew 18 does not not include. And what it tells us is that the pursuit is only half the story. The other half of the, the story is this restoration. And restoration is burdensome. It's, du- it's difficult. It's laborious. It, it takes pa- It's painful at times. A sheep, as, as one commentator has noted, oftentimes would become agitated, aggressive, disorientated when it was straying from the flock. So no doubt, as this shepherd was trying to pick up this, this sheep, he probably was kicked, bitten, scratched. It was difficult. It was painful work. We also see this this idea of restoration, that third third parable with the prodigal son. No doubt a parable I'm sure many of us are familiar with. These two sons have an inheritance from their father. The younger son wants to essentially cash out his inheritance and he goes and squanders his wealth in a foreign land and he comes back repentant, willing to just be a servant in his father's house. He comes back repentant. As soon as his father sees this younger son From a distance, his heart fills with compassion. He embraces this son and seeks to restore this son into the household. And notice the process of this restoration. He dresses his son in the finest robes of the household. And then he he holds this great feast and banquet for his son. He he kills the fattened calf and tells the, the servants to celebrate, for his son is back. Now, we know that Christ, our good shepherd, our faithful shepherd, also is in the business of restoring his sheep. So, Psalm 23 says that Christ restores our soul. We also know that in this life, we, as I mentioned before, both sinners and saints, we continue to sin, we continue to fall short of the glory of God. We have the law of God written upon our hearts. One avenue by which God speaks to us in his His law is through our conscience. Our conscience testifies to us as our catechism says that we have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, never kept any of them, and are always prone to all evil. So in those moments when we have sinned, when we have fallen short of God's glory, when our conscience is testifying against us, Christ desires to restore your soul through his gospel promises. And we come into contact with these gospel promises, both audibly through his word in moments like this, but also visibly at the communion table, which we'll be partaking of shortly after this this sermon. In that spoken gospel, we are reminded that we have been clothed in Christ's perfect robes of righteousness. And just as the son was restored through being dressed in the, the best robes of the household, God in Christ dresses us in his son's holy merits and works. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your filth. He doesn't see the many times in which you have transgressed God's commandments. He sees perfection. He sees righteousness. He sees blamelessness. But Christ also hosts the feast for his people in this age. The table of our Lord, where we eat, yes, in one sense, common bread and wine, but in partaking this common bread and wine, we are having a true and real participation with the risen body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that Christ in this meal feeds and nourishes our souls unto everlasting life. So you may have come here this morning feeling burdened with the weight of sin or just exhausted by travailing the veil of tears that we all have to walk through uh, this side of glory. And corporate worship is a time where God desires to restore your soul, to restore your soul by reminding you of who you are, that you are righteous, that you've been clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness, that you've been forgiven, that you've been washed, that you are a citizen of the age to come. Christ desires in this moment to feed your souls. You know, just as meat and drink sustain our temporal life, Christ's body and and blood sustain our spiritual lives. We come Sundays in some sense, hungry, starving, not physically, spiritually, and we come to be fed with Christ. So do you feel, view worship? Do you feel the Lord's day in this way? It's an opportunity for Christ your good shepherd to restore your soul? Well, of course we experience this shepherding ministry of Christ through His Word and, and Sacrament and Spirit. We know that Christ is absent from us uh, bodily. Another way in which we experience the shepherding ministry of Christ while He is absent from us bodily is through his under shepherds, pastors, elders, who are called to physically care for the people of God in this age. 1 Peter 5, Peter exhorts the elders among him to care, to shepherd for the flock of of God, as they anticipate the coming of the chief shepherd, who will uh, reward them with this great crown of righteousness. I would imagine that Peter, when he was saying these words to these fellow elders, was thinking about Jesus' own words to him at the end of John's gospel. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? This is right after his denial. Do you love me, Peter? He says, yes, yes, Laura, of course I love you. And Jesus responds, well, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Jesus says. Yes, Laura, of course I love you. Tend to my lambs. And then again, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, of course I love you. Feed my lambs. Ephesians 4 also speaks about one of the gifts that our ascended Savior gives his people in this age is a shepherd, an under-shepherd, pastors and elders. And therefore, you can think of pastors and elders as given the job of imitating the chief shepherd in pursuing and restoring God's people. That's really what church discipline is. Pursuing and restoring those who leave the fold. And this idea of restoration is very important. Oftentimes when we think of discipline, we think of punitive action. Being punished for sins. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Strict justice. But how does Christ deal with you when you sin? Does he treat you as your sins deserve? Does he mete out strict justice? Quite to the contrary. Christ is long suffering. He's merciful, gracious, patient, forbearing with all of our many sins and transgressions. And thus, under shepherds are called to imitate that sort of restoration. As long as there's repentance, individuals are brought back into the fold. They're not labeled, identified by their former sin or sins, but they're fully embraced, reconciled, forgiven, as this prodigal son is is reconciled and brought back into the household. That transforms how we view discipline when we view it as restoration and not punitive discipline, punitive justice. So Jesus is saying here that church discipline requires under shepherds to imitate our chief shepherd in pursuing and restoring the people of God. We also see here that uh, Jesus is teaching us that church discipline requires church membership. Now notice in all three of these parables, there's a very clear delineation between that which is in and that which is out. The sheep was in the fold, then it was clearly out of the fold, and then it was brought back into the fold, the coin was at one time in the woman's purse, and then it was lost in the corner of the room, and then it was brought back into the woman's purse after she found it. The son was in the father's household, left the father's household, then was restored back into the father's household. It's clear delineation between that which is in and that which is out. Well, if Christ's under-shepherds are called to imitate the chief shepherd, specifically in pursuing and restoring God-straying people, how are they to know what sheep are in their fold? How are they to know what coins they are responsible for? What, how many sons they have in their house? If they don't know this, it's going to be pretty hard to care for God's people and imitate our chief shepherd. They need to know. Who's in and who's out. They need to know how many sheep are in their fold, how many coins are in their purse, how many sons are in their household. The shepherd is not going after his neighbor's lost sheep. This pursuit is motivated because it's his sheep. And one way in which we do this is through church membership. I mentioned before many times that church membership is simply defined by our four vows, making that public profession not only to the Christian faith, but specifically to faith in Jesus Christ in the presence of, of many witnesses. It's a public declaration that it's our desire to serve our local brothers and sisters with the gifts the Lord has given us. But it's also that submission, submission to local leaders. Hebrews 13, uh, the author of Hebrews specifically says this. He says that Christians are to submit to their leaders. Of course, he doesn't mean you as a Christian need to submit to every single Christian leader on this globe, it's ridiculous. It's a local relationship. And likewise, elders are to care for them because God will hold them accountable to how they have cared for those who have submitted to them. And therefore submission really is that that marker that signals to these under shepherds that this is someone in my fold. This is someone whom I'm accountable for before God. This is someone who I have to seek to pursue and restore if that is necessary. You know, a helpful analogy I once read by a a Reformed theologian is is that of a a canvas and a painting. Of course, a canvas is not a painting, but a canvas is the necessary backdrop for a painting to be created. Well, In a similar way, church membership is sort of the canvas by which discipline is practiced. It's a necessary backdrop for under shepherds to be faithful to our Lord's dictates and desire for his church. So church membership requires church membership, the submission by the people of God to a local community. We also see that church discipline calls for a a rejoicing church. Calls for a rejoicing church you look with me in verse 6 and verse 9, we see that the response of the shepherd and the woman, after they find that which is lost, is to call all of one's friends and neighbors to rejoice with them. That which is lost has been found. And this word for rejoice with me is, in the original language, one word. It refers to this corporate rejoicing. And thus the church is called to rejoice in the bringing in of that lost sheep and coin. And we see this reiterated in the parable of the prodigal son, where the father calls for all the servants to celebrate, rejoice in the coming home of of the younger son. And we also see in verse 7, verse 10, that this church's joy is to reflect heaven's joy, the angel's joy, and the repentance of a sinner. So we're called to rejoice. The church is called to rejoice. It's oftentimes helpful when we are called to do something to think about its corresponding vice, to think about what we're tempted to do instead of that positive action. And so what's the corresponding vice to rejoicing in the restoration of a member? Well, we see this corresponding vice, especially exemplified in the older son of the prodigal. And we see towards the end of this chapter that this older son, uh, as soon as he hears what his father has done to embrace the coming home of this younger son, he is angry, he is frustrated, he is jealous, he is not reacting well. I have been faithful, I have been virtuous, I have not squandered my wealth, but yet my younger son has squandered everything and comes home And my father kills the fattened calf, something he's never done for me and my friends. In the older son's mind, the the weights don't seem to be balanced. Things don't quite seem to be just. If we're honest with ourselves, we probably would be feeling similar emotions if we were in that situation. The balances don't seem to be just. So what's going on here? Well, notice how this older brother is viewing the situation strictly through the lens of strict justice. The balances need to be perfectly equal. When rather he should be viewing this through the lens of restoration, forgiveness, mercy, grace, long suffering. Now we have to remember that we are citizens of two kingdoms. That is to say we have a foot in the common kingdom and we have a foot in the spiritual redemptive kingdom. And these two kingdoms call for slightly different ethics. So insofar as we are citizens of this common kingdom, strict justice is a very good thing, or at least a measure of strict justice is a very good thing. God institutes this in in his covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter nine. After he destroys the world through the flood, he says that whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for man is created in my image. What he's saying is that man by virtue of being an image bearer has the right to enforce a measure of strict justice. Now of course it would be somewhat chaotic if everybody was trying to enforce justice and so what civilization and mankind has has done after uh, after that command is to set up an institution, civil government and a magistrate who enforces justice for the people. This is why in Romans 13, Paul just assumes that the magistrate is legitimate based on God's covenant with Noah. he says, the magistrate has the God ordained task to punish the evildoer, justice, punitive. It's retributive. In fact, we wouldn't want to live in a society where all people were only deal, uh, we only dealt with people through the lens of restoration, mercy, and grace someone committed murder, a simple repentance should not be enough. However, insofar as we are citizens of the church, that kingdom calls for a different ethic. We are not to view our relationships with our brothers and sisters through the lens of strict justice, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Rather, we are to deal with our brothers and sisters with mercy and grace. We are to restore that Uh, he who has gone astray. And this is rooted in the gospel. In the gospel, we have sinned against God and God in Christ has satisfied his own claims to justice so that he can extend mercy and grace to you and I. Paul says that God is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And so we as a church are called to imitate and show forth the love and mercy and grace of Christ while leaving justice to God. He is the one who satisfies his own claims to justice. One of the ways we can be a a huge witness to this watching world as we are serious about this ethic that the Lord has given us. And this is very helpful to remember because we have that impulse for strict justice, which in one sense is good, but it's good only for that common kingdom. And therefore, what should we think about this third mark of the church, church discipline? Is this something that we should shed or something that we should embrace? I believe that Jesus would answer with the latter. When this is practiced, the way that Christ has ordained it to be done, it in fact is a wonderful gift to the, the flock and people of God. So let us pray.